And that's important. That's important even today. And that's another thing that comes out of this period and holds through very much to today. The, the Saudi government does not want to be treated as a leading Arab government or a first among Arab equals or even a dominant power within the Arab or in the Gulf uh, region. It wants to be treated as an international player. King Abdulaziz wanted to be treated as, as a credible ruler in his own right, not as a credible Arab ruler or a credible Muslim ruler, but as a credible ruler, period. As someone who was uh, deserving and capable and, and should be treated by counterparts around the world as an equal. And that's just as true today as it, as it was then. And, mm -hmm. and it's not always appreciated by, by foreign governments and foreign uh, publics. This is the 966 episode 43, Richard Mumtaz. How you doing, sir? Wonderful. Number 43. Yeah, like a bullet. Keep climbing. Today we'll be talking about carbon capture, lassoing all the travel and tourism news of late in Saudi Arabia, and so much more. We also have a really great conversation coming up soon with Joshua Yatfi, who is the U.S. State Department resident expert in Middle East affairs and author of the recently published book, Saudi Arabia and Iraq as Friends and Enemies, which is great. You guys are going to love this. Before we get started, please subscribe to this podcast, either in audio form, wherever you get it, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or on YouTube. For those of us watching on YouTube, what's up, YouTube fam? Subscribe there as well. You can find <laughs> it's all getting our, bigger. It's getting the much bigger. Getting bigger and bigger. It is cool to see. It really is uh, really motivating to see the uh, audience grow, which is great. Um, so just subscribe to us there. And all of our segments are there as well. Uh, conversations, um, breakout sort of segments that we're doing. So if you want to watch just one part of this and not get the whole hog, then you can do it there. Okay, Richard, let's get going. What's your one big thing this week? Uh, more of the same in the sense that it's sort of an exercise in Richard trying to educate himself and, and, you know, making, subjecting our audience to that process. My apologies. And me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, this is interesting. I should know more about this, but I don't really come to a conclusion. But anyway, uh, last week in my one big thing, I, I looked at two sectors that are essential to Saudi Arabia's energy transition efforts, hydrogen and carbon capture technology. I noted that energy consultancy firm Wood McKenzie has stated that, quote, the 2020s is likely to be the decade of hydrogen, unquote. After this week's one big thing, maybe Wood McKenzie also feels that, quote, the 2020s is likely to be the decade of carbon capture and storage, unquote. In any case, I remained, I don't know what the word is, fascinated, transfixed, enthralled, uh, whatever adjective it is that you want to use about this huge bet that is being made uh, as major companies invest billions of dollars on emission reduction projects that still require significant technological progress to be economically viable. Um, the recent completion of two funding rounds for European uh, carbon capture startups are stark reminders of this situation. In other words, where the bet's being made, but the technology may not be there yet to make it economically viable. In April, Climeworks, uh, a Swiss carbon dioxide removal startup raised $650 million, the largest investment ever into a direct air carbon capture startup. In May, Carbon Clean, a UK startup with intriguing carbon capture technology, just completed a $150 million investment round that was led by Chevron, Samsung, which has a huge, a very significant oil and gas portfolio, and notably Saudi Aramco. 
uh, more evidence of, of Saudi Arabia investing in cutting edge technology and trying to be on, on, on catch that wave, you know, early. Um, Saudi Aramco and other investors are interested in carbon cleans tech because it appears to have managed to compress the size of the equipment needed and up the efficiency of carbon capture on a large scale. This is critical because, again, as you learn, as you, you know, get deeper into this stuff, that the cost of storing CO2 emissions from natural gas plants is around $80 to $90 per ton. And to lower the cost of CCS, carbon capture and storage, there's been a drive to produce larger plants so economies of scale kick in and push the price per ton down. But that's resulted in a problem. One, the initial cost of building a plant is very high, and two, a lot of room is needed. Um, carbon Clean says it can bring down the cost to $30 per ton by 2025 and also reducing considerably the space and, and area needed. And at $30 per ton, that would be a third of the current projected cost of natural gas, CCS. My fascination is this, and to go back to the beginning, in 2021, the capacity of planned projects, planned CCS projects, grew 52% to 100 million tons a year. If built, emphasis on if built, because they don't all get built, those projects would nearly triple the 40 million tons per year of CCS capacity now operating. And as I mentioned last time, last week, um, North America and the U.S. account for approximately 50% of CC, CCS projects globally and well over 50% of CCS facilities and development. So the world and, and specifically energy majors are piling into CCS while critics, and there are many, say CCS is a waste of money and will pro 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 prolong the life of dirty fossil fuels and that carbon capture and storage at scale is not still not fully proven and remains expensive. And you can't argue with, I mean, there's plenty of people who feel that way. Even so, these record-breaking funding rounds by carbon capture startups suggest to me that with CCS and in parentheses and with green hydrogen also, it seems, the world is attempting to, quote, technology, unquote, its way to an economically viable solution. I certainly hope we succeed, you know, succeed a lot uh, hangs in the balance on this, this shot. Um, Sam Frankhauser, Frankhauser, professor of climate economics and policy at the University of Oxford, shares some insight about CCS when he notes that, quote, it's still expensive, still only at the pilot stage, and there's a lot of technical and environmental questions. But this is essential technology, unquote. That sort of captures it for me. It's like, I just find this, as I said, it's just, I just find this fascinating to be watching this uh, endeavor, this moonshot, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that is so critical to our efforts to reach, uh, you know, climate goals. And uh, so much of it depends on things that are as yet unwritten in many ways in terms of technology. So anyway, that's my one big thing. Back into the, back into the wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> um, good one. The, this, uh, press release from Aramco Chevron. It's really interesting. My fascination in this is, and there's a paragraph I'm going to read really quickly. CCS works by taking gases from the industrial process and moving them into a tower structure where they're showered with a chemical that absorbs the carbon dioxide. It produces a beer-like substance with CO2 trapped within it, which is then heated to remove the CO2. That CO2 can then be used to make other products such as fuels or stored in abandoned gas wells or to get teenagers drunk on the weekend. Um, <laughs> that last part wasn't in it. Um, this is cool. This is all just part of, you know, there is no one approach here to the energy transition and, you know, finding a solution to 
right now what we're dealing with is a huge energy shortage. Um, this is really cool. This technology is very fascinating. Um, this is a lot of money to go into this. This isn't just pie in the sky seed money. This is hundreds, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And the technology is getting better. It's not in its, you know, pipe dream phase. It's they're starting to refine it, um, like by adding the disc at the top of the CCS device, making it smaller and more efficient. This is really cool. It is. Uh, I, I was, you know, I, that that bear part was fascinating. <laughs> it was. And the interesting Climeworks, even Climeworks was got 650 million as opposed to car, uh, Carbon Clean, which got 150 million. Climeworks uh, technology works more, uh, is focused more on sort of industrial emissions. It's almost like an air scrubber, mm -hmm. which is a much harder thing to do, but also massively more, in, more less efficient. I mean, uh, than, than, you know, drawing directly off of a, for example, a natural gas process. Um, and it's, it's massively expensive at this, at, at this point. Uh, yet it's still, you know, pulled out 650 million fundraising round. Um, but again, the technology is something people think has real promise. Uh, you know, it's just, a, it's just, uh, we're, it's not, it's, we're not stumbling along because there are real scientists, real experts are doing this and they understand this, they understand a lot better than I do. And, and, you know, understand the proposition and the risk, risk inherent in that proposition. And they probably understand the technology the learning curve much better. But, uh, you know, there's constant uh, misfires. I mean, the UK has, has put in 500 million into research on, on carbon capture and, and government, you know, awards and promotional things that they haven't turned up anything. October, just as just this past October, the largest carbon capture pro, uh, project in the US, the, the Kemper project down in Mississippi, which intended to try and capture um, uh, carbon capture and store off of coal, $7.5 million investment. Essentially, they just imploded it. It didn't work. It wasn't efficient enough. It couldn't compete. Uh, and, and then, you know, they've been dismantling this whole thing. And that was sort of a, a bellwether project for the U.S. And it's, you know, it's turned to dust. Uh, there, as I said, there's plenty of others that are working. I don't, I don't know exactly the, what efficiency they're working. And, 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 you know, the premise is, I think, is that, you know, everyone's learning as they go along. So we're getting better at it. And I trust that's the case. And, and you have to, these are, these are smart companies. They're making real investments. You, you have to believe that they, they see an economical uh, result at the end. And so just to understand the criticism of this is basically that this is a waste of money because we shouldn't be burning fossil fuels in the first place. We need to just stop burning fossil fuels. And so what we're doing is essentially, you know, um, allowing or encouraging more fossil fuel consumption because we are coming up with ideas to get some of the carbon out of the air. Is that, is that yeah. sort of close? Yeah. So, you know, that's the difference between a lot of people. Exactly. You know, and this is one of the Saudis point is, are we after carbon capture or are we after zero emissions? Mm -hmm. um, and the zero emissions folks are saying, you know, you can't keep doing fossil fuels because it's a, it's a high emitter, even if you, if you use this technology to significantly reduce it. Um, so that's one argument, just as you say, you put your finger on it. The other one is, is, is it hasn't been proved at, at scale and it hasn't been proved to be economical, which I think we're, you know, as I said, we're going to try and technology our way out of that part of it. Mm -hmm. I, 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 realistically, I'm in the camp that you, you, you go after emissions wherever you can and as effectively as you can. Uh, and if that includes, you know, minimizing emissions from fossil fuel, uh, while we are in a transition period, then all the better. 
Yeah, it's like I, I read it recently about a startup and I can't remember anything else about it other than the fact that it um, is going around to farms and hope and seeking to reduce the amount of methane produced from cows, which is right. a huge driver of, of greenhouse gases. So, yeah. I mean, you know, this is this is really good, Richard. This is a, a second week in a row where you've gotten really helpfully technical oh, the tracks. Um, yeah. And so I'm just sitting here listening and being like, yeah, in that's the weeds, interesting. in the weeds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Very, you're, very, very di- you're very diplomatic, Lucian. I appreciate that about you. <laughs> I've got to have some role here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Richard, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> uh, no, that was excellent. Um, and we included some stuff on this this week in our newsletter, our daily newsletter for the Saudi U.S. Trade Group, SUSTIG, yeah. at SUSTG.com. Just good stuff, which is where I started reading a little bit about this earlier. So uh, fascinating topic. Um, just good stuff. Um, Richard, my one big thing this week, there's a lot going on in Saudi Arabia's tourism sector that I wanted to run through here. This week, there were two events in the region, a major aviation summit in Riyadh called the Future Aviation Forum and a tourism and travel event in Dubai, the Arabian travel market, both pretty big events happening basically simultaneously. The Riyadh summit saw speeches and comments from Saudi Arabia's Minister of Energy, which, uh, as it always does, generated some headlines, uh, but also Saudi Arabia's Minister of Transportation. So in between these two events in the region, we had a lot of updates to some storylines that we follow daily in our newsletters. I just mentioned suscg.com, uh, of course, every week here on the 966. But just to rip, rip through them quickly here, because there was really a lot, it's kind of hard to fit into one piece. Um, so I'm just going to sort of update everybody on them. The tourism sector in general in Saudi Arabia, the kingdom is expecting a significant bounce back and already has had one after the pandemic. Uh, 62 million domestic and international visits were recorded over the last year, making a 72% recovery to pre-pandemic levels. Impressive. Saudi Arabia aims to exceed 70 million tourist visits this year. To help drive that tourism growth, the kingdom committed to investing $100 billion into its aviation sector by 2030. This is according to Minister of Transport Saleh al Jasser, who also said the kingdom is expecting to launch a new airline soon. And then down to the project level on Neom in Saudi Arabia, Neom's head of tourism, Andrew McEvoy, said the futuristic megacity would become its first tourist, would, excuse me, welcome its first tourist by 2024. He added the city would have built hotels and be ready to host the first set of tourists within the next two years. On the Red Sea project, the visitors will be, visitors will be able to go even sooner than that, with reps from that project on the beautiful Red Sea coast saying it will open three new hotels this year and take its first visitors in early 2023. And by the end of 2024, the development will comprise 3,000 rooms across 16 separate resorts, 14 of them right on the coast. In Daria in Saudi Arabia, just outside of Riyadh, the development expects to announce $6 billion worth of tenders this year. Of course, Richard, we've talked about this uh, good bit here uh, with all the really nice hotels going up in the area, including the recently announced Armani Hotel. They're hoping to attract around 7 million people annually. And then lastly, in Al-Ula, officials said they welcomed 146,000 visitors in 2021. And one official noted that Al-Ula will not be a race to get as many tourists as possible, but instead would be more of an intimate destination. Quote, Al-Ula will never be a mass tourism destination. It will have between 1 and 2 million annual visitors by 2030. That helps us to offer individualized experience. That doesn't mean everyone will have a personalized service. But it does mean that you'll be in a quiet place where people can have individual private experiences. So, Richard, just so much going on in the tourist space in Saudi Arabia right now. We really got a glimpse of that this week. Uh, it's sort of the diverse options to visit Saudi Arabia, which are on offer from luxury relaxation to culture and adventure. 
definitely not a one size fits all approach for the Saudis on this. Just a lot going on. I, just, I thought it would it'd be help to try to wrangle it all together just to put our head ar- heads around it because sort of a news making week. It, it was a very busy week, and that's a that's a great wrap up. And and I it's I think it's important to note that all those different topics you covered were in our review this week. All of them, mm-hmm. Susig News Review. Uh, a lot of them captured in the feature article that Lucian puts together, um, and uh, and it's just sort of and 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 so that's really that that's really a nice you know overview of just what's happened this week. Mm-hmm. Just this week, astounding. Um, ah, you know, so we're in this all every day, all day, and we've seen it, uh, and we have the advantage of being the weeds over a duration, over mm-hmm. a period, long period. So we have a, a sense of the arc. We have a sense of the change of, of uh, expectations, and we have a sense of implementation, either you know, you know, good implementation or insufficient implementation. Um, I just think this is really interesting because, especially when you when you juxtapose what you just talked about, the the the, the tourists. So the tourists have bounced back. A lot of those are domestic tourists, which is a big part of their thing, their 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 plan. Um, and then the hundred billion dollars of investment into its essentially its aviation infrastructure, commercial inf- aviation infrastructure. Although they also want to, uh, they want to really increase their their shipping, you know, loads as well. But the point is, my point is this: is you see a lot of things coming together. You can almost envision, you know, whoever is in the back room making all the plans, going, "Okay, you know." The global travel and tourism, in, you know, direct contribution to GDP globally in 2020 was approximately 4.7 trillion dollars. This is a, this is you know there's huge ecosystems you know in the U.S. in 2020 that was 1.1 trillion alone. Uh, the, you know the most frequent destinations are France, Spain, and the U.S. Enormous amounts of income. Uh, enormous numbers of jobs created. Mm-hmm. Uh, just trans- it's a transformational industry. And you, and you can see them going, okay, how do we do this? You know, let's start with the first, let's identify and create domestic attractions. So then you start, you know, you start seeing these amazing places like Aula or Red Sea uh, and Amala, um, you know, uh, Doria, all these really impressive and exciting and new places to be seen by people, maybe initially by Saudis, ultimately by foreigners. Then you have to develop an acceptable hospitality industry because there aren't people, you know, so they've been doing, trying to do that for a number of years, you know, train people up how to be capable in in the industry. Then you have to build a sufficient stock of hotels ranging the gamut from, you know, price, price ranges. So like you just noted, you know, you have luxury down to, you know, uh, not luxury, but less, I'm not sure what the term is, but like culture uh, and adventure. Mid range. Yeah, mid-range, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, what they've done and they've they, then you go after domestic tourism, but then, you know, if you want the next big whale, that's international tourism. Mm-hmm. And so if you've built something that people want to come see now, let's build something that can get them there. And this is, you know, that hundred billion dollar investment in, in uh, airlines and a lot of that's infrastructure. It's not only, you know, building a new airline, I mean, introducing a new airline, but also, you know, refurbishing uh, and privatizing what, 29 airports. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the plan, you know, they've tried it before, but that's the plan. 
but building new airport in Riyadh. So you you see them, you see them, and that was one of the key things that was uh, mentioned by um, one of the speakers at this aviation event. He 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 basically said, you you know, we're we're talking about an ecosystem, you know, and and the multiplier multiplier effect associated with that ecosystem. And so in my mind, you see this, you know. They see the vision. They want to get a slice of that global travel industry. They see it as a as a as a sector, you know, that's going to eventually be on par in terms of contribution to GDP with other sectors. You know, there's the three primary ones: oil, petrochemical, and mining. We'll talk about later. Um, but you know, it's just fascinating to see them move along on this and how each each piece is a part of a bigger whole, and it does hang together. And and so anyway, you know, your wrap up to me speaks to sort of, it captures parts of the whole picture that are starting to come together. I'm glad you put it that way, because if you think about all this stuff and you just approach it from the here and now and not from the view of we've been watching this for over a decade for me and way longer for you. I mean, you know, when we talk about a nascent tourism industry in Saudi Arabia, by that we mean literally no tourist visas, no tourists at all just domestic tourism and then high religious tourism or business visits and that's it. And so this is sort of like, it's interesting because it's hard to think of another country where this has gone on. I mean, virtually every country is as old as its tourism industry. Um, and I'm just trying to think of the top off the top of my head of if anyone has, has had to do this where they've been completely closed off and then are saying, wait, this is uh, we're leaving a lot of money on the table here, but also like there's a lot to see and do here. Let's develop this. And like you said, it takes a, a very significant and it takes time, but it takes an approach that involves developing the the spots, developing a reason to come and then a way to get them here. And then, you know, where we are now is sort of a way to market what you're offering to the world. Um, and this show in Dubai was was really big. Um, the ruler of Dubai, Dubai attended. I mean, the Middle East is really, you know, especially especially the UAE and Saudi Arabia are really going after that international segment, as you said, especially from Europe and the United States. So just really cool to see. I mean, this is just like, it, it's just kind of mind blowing, frankly, to think yeah. that they had nothing, you know, just a few years ago. Well, and that's part of the thing that's interesting because the Saudis don't have it. They're late to the game. The Emiratis have it. They've done mm -hmm. it. They do it well. They, they have real attractions. Obviously, you know, I, th I think uh, Dubai is, is maybe the most, uh, the busiest international transit airport uh, in the, in the world, um, Saudis don't have it. What I, what's, what's fascinating is that they've decided to go get it and you see them putting the paces, putting the pieces together. And the, in some ways, I have to think they've been very pleased by the response to the, their, their domestic tourism sites, especially Alula and, you know, with the Red Sea coming on and, and, you know, eventually Kadia is going to be there and, and Riyadh and, you know, they have major, major, uh, and they're building a huge, huge tourist, uh, ecosystem in, in Taif uh, down in the, in the South uh, East in the mountains. So, you know, they're, they're doing that part and now they've got to get people there. And then, you know, the last part of that, that thing is what you talked about is promote, 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 because they don't, they're not there yet, but mm -hmm. you can see them aiming to get there and you can see them sort of trying to put the puzzle pieces together and make it, make it all fit. None of this is without its hiccups either. I mean, you mentioned, um, that they tried to privatize the Air Force before, uh, hired Goldman Sachs to do it, didn't work out. They're trying again now. I saw recently this week, and I think, Richard, you sent this to me, but the CEO of the Jetta Airports, 
um, got was fired, sacked. Uh, was sacked. sacked, you know, because apparently he wasn't doing a great job and there was issues. I mean, there, this is, you know, this is a learning process. There's, there are going to be mistakes and, and missteps, but the vision is there. But there's an example of, of, of the details. The, the backup at the Jet Airport was a result of all the tour, all the Hajj and uh, Umrah companies, mm-hmm. all the people that come in under their sponsorship, under their programs, whatever. They send all those people to the airport 12 hours in advance, which, of course, makes no sense. But they're doing that to, just in case there's any kind of glitch in the processing or whatever. This is a habit out of old days. I think it's better now. So you've got just scores of of, of immigrant groups and others, you know, hanging around the airport. And of course it's backed up. And so, you know, the, the, he was, but he, these are the things you got to work through to mm-hmm. be a, a tourist destination. And, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has decided they're going to work through it. They're not there yet. And I should also add, you know, and we have it later with when we talk about the mining, uh, you know, they throw out a $32 billion number, but that hundred billion dollar number is not, Saudis aren't going to, they aren't just, forking over hundred billion. They're trying to get hundred billion investments. Right. PIF will be a, a, you know, a leader in all this and they'll invest a lot of their own money, but they're counting on significant investments uh, from foreign sources, um, non-Saudi sources, or even uh, you, you, maybe private sector Saudi sources, if they want a piece of this. The point being is they may not hit that hundred billion mark, um, but you can sort of, you can see where they're headed and mm-hmm. you can see the parts they're trying to bring together to make this machine work. And it's fascinating to me. Richard, the last time I was in Jeddah, they uh, right before they began, right before they launched the new Jeddah Airport, um, a little, a little guest appearance from Coco there. I'm sorry for, <laughs> Coco. for that. Um, <laughs> I just sort of remembered it was right around the time of the Umrah, and it was again the old Jeddah Airport, which was ranked second worst in the world. And my goodness, <laughs> it was overcrowded. Some things you just never forget. That's one of them. Um, and you you contrast that with Dubai, where you get off the airplane and you just don't stop walking all the way through customs and immigration because it's like, just so beautifully efficient. So yeah. and Saudi, you know, Saudi sees that they see what the opportunity is there and you know how to get there, but. You know, and, and, yeah. and they, yeah, yeah, sorry to interrupt. And they've no. improved it, but you know, you're still dealing with this tremendous influx, uh, you know, over a limited period of immigrants in the, in the, you know, and in that case in Jeddah. But yeah, they have a ways to go, but they're trying to get there. Mm-hmm. So, this is the last thing I want to add. You know, there's a theme that comes up on the show all the time. Fahad Nazar from the embassy said it. Um, it just, it's really echoed with pretty much everybody we've talked to. And the one thing, the one way to get people to understand Saudi Arabia is to visit it. And, um, you know, that's what I think that's going to help change a lot of perceptions of Saudi Arabia is when it's more acceptable and more commonplace to go visit Saudi and uh, just, you know, socially here in the United States. Hey, have you visited Saudi Arabia? Yeah, it's it's cool. It's awesome. You know, it's different than what I thought. So there's a lot at stake here with this, uh, which I think is, you know, interesting. But um, agreed. And, you know, I guess uh, Alula had 146,000 visitors of visitors last year and, you know, five years ago they had eight. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, it's clearly uh, on a pickup. People are very excited about the things that you can do and the things you can see. And, and the more, you know, the more they go, the better. Mm-hmm. Like you say. Richard, what do you think? Let's get to our conversation with Joshua Yaffe from the U.S. State Department, author of a really uh, an excellent book that's already been published on Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Uh, let's get to it. Excited about this. This is a departure from our normal thing. And, and, and I'm 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 really looking forward to being educated. That's about to happen. Happens to me every show. So 
We're speaking now with Joshua Yapfi, State Department resident expert in Middle East affairs and author of the recently published book, Saudi Arabia and Iraq as Friends and Enemies, Borders, Tribes, and a Shared History. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us today on the 966. Thank you. Josh, uh, I'm just really excited that you've joined us. You know, I lobbied a little bit. We finally got you. you you're a, a new father. You're exceptionally, you, you know, you've just published a book. You've been working on your doctorate. You've been exceptionally busy. There's an important thing that needs to happen here, though, because if you were just listen to our introduction, you know, one would think you were just a policy wonk. And I want to I want to state clearly here that uh, Josh has uh, through his you know through his interest, his curiosity, his network of friends has built an extraordinary network of people, uh, you know, from the region in the U.S academia, diplomacy, that sort of thing, that he, he's, he's become uh, just a, a really unique convener of people, getting people together, practitioners in a particular area from cross disciplines and sectors. Um, we did some research on the, I'm going to share this, okay. uh, this screen, the Middle East, U.S. Middle East Expert Network. Can you see that, Josh? <laughs> That's cute. That's, <laughs> you can take that down. That's embarrassing. It's <laughs> not even true. Good this is true. And we had two options. We had one, we had the Middle East Expert Network, or we had Six Degrees of Josh. That's ridiculous. Six Degrees of Josh <laughs> took extraordinary amounts of paper. I'll and have nothing to do with this. I, I don't even associate myself with this. <laughs> and by the way, I will send you this file, Josh, to put on your wall. <laughs> it's an NFT actually <laughs> okay look right. can i get started then if you've had your fun all right no all right so now we're, we're on our way okay um, look um i just i will come back to this later uh, the idea of what it means to be a middle east expert in washington but i just want to say one thing about that um you know when i started all this i was uh trailing around my mom who herself had spent 40 years as an expert on Iraq and Iran in Washington. Uh, and the people I met and the things I saw, the events I attended were very different from today, uh, starting with the individuals involved. So many Middle East experts in her era were talking from the 90s to the early 2000s when she was doing public uh, events and public speaking and uh, think tank roundtables and the like after she had done quite a number of years in the intelligence community in the United States, that um, the people in that circle, in that orbit, uh, the elder generation when I was just getting started, so many of them had had a previous background in the US government. They were by and large uh, born and raised in America. Uh, they had served years, decades in government service, often in the intelligence community, either in military intelligence or at CIA or or other elements of the US government and intelligence capacity. And they had then gone into the think tank world and into academia uh, with that uh, shared experience, with that shared background. And with that came a number of things, not just a knowledge of obscure issues, obscure at the time, because if you go back to the mid nineties, there weren't a lot of people that were experts on Yemen or experts on Saudi Arabia for that matter. Uh, but they had more than just a knowledge of what at the time were niche issues. They had a mutual respect and admiration for what each other had been through in those careers. And they brought that with them when they entered into the public sphere, when they became think tank experts and the like. 
they, by and large, uh, could disagree on issues, on policies, on ideas, and yet still uh, defer or uh, uh, show each other a level of respect that, uh, I'm not going to say it doesn't exist today, respect certainly exists, but in a different way, uh, a, a qualitatively different way. And I don't know how to describe it. I try to, I try to get at this in the preface of the book, the change that I've witnessed over time from when I was sort of in an apprenticeship mode many, many years ago till today, where, where I, I feel I have a sense of who's out there, what they're doing and, and uh, what, they're, what they're up to. I think that uh, what once existed in terms of networks, in terms of uh, asabia, if you want to call it that, in a very DC sense, among Middle East experts, that that's been replaced to some extent. Uh, it's a different world of people who now occupy expert positions in Washington, in academia, in think tank world, et cetera. Um, and even within the government, uh, there people who do these types of jobs have different types of motivations. Uh, it's rare that you meet people that want to dedicate their entire careers to one country, okay? Which was not uncommon in my mother's day among people doing Middle East. Uh, you look at Ken Katzman or Ken Pollock, mm -hmm. uh, Dan Byman, these people who really dedicated careers to one country or two countries or, or a small subunit of the region. Uh, spending decades going back uh, uh, again and again to research these places. Uh, it's changed. A lot of things have changed. And some for the better. You have so many more Arab voices that have come into Washington, so many people from the region who have come in and now uh, attempt to advise or consult or to lend their expertise. And I suppose there's a benefit to that as well. Uh, but there is a different sense of belonging or a different sense of tribalism than there once was. And we can lament it, or as I do in my book, we can question what that meant to begin with. Maybe, maybe that sense of expertise never fully existed the way I once thought it did or, or the people involved once thought it did. Maybe there was a clickishness to this crowd, if you go back three decades, uh, that wasn't necessarily expertise, but was simply a, a level of familiarity, a professional familiarity. Who knows? It's hard to say. Everything is subjective. I like to think that there was a qualitative difference in how people reacted and responded to one another once upon a time. And that what we see today in this field is a little more tactical and a little more transactional. And I think what I've tried to do in the last 10 years or so is to get back to that sense of community that at least I imagine once existed. I hope it once existed. I hope that what I saw 20 years ago when I was coming up was real and not just my imagination or my idolization or, or hero worship of my elders. Uh, but I, I hope that it was real and that that type of sense of community, of real community, not just I'll do you a favor by inviting you to my think tank event in a fancy European capital. In return, I expect you to give me a chance at a publication with your institution, et cetera. And, uh, and uh, that way we will build partnerships in a sense. Um, that this so-and-so is useful because what he's done lends legitimacy and credibility to our institution by affiliation with him. And in return, there may be funding opportunities down the road for fundraising. I would like to think that that's not 
that's not where the profession ends, but that's where the profession begins, or that's uh, only one part of what this profession is all about. And that there, there is another side to it, which is building long-term relationships of trust and confidence and friendship. Because one thing is for certain, if you're going to spend 40 hours a week doing a job, uh, I should hope that you enjoy the people you're working with, because that's a big chunk of your life that mm. you know, uh, you're spending with them. And so I'd, I'd like to have uh, surround myself and spend my time with people who I respect and who I care about and who I uh, enjoy the company of. Because uh, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Someday, all of our jobs may be replaced by artificial intelligence. There's companies already <laughs> working on that for Middle East studies. I, I know two of them uh, that I've met uh, in passing already. Uh, all of our jobs may be computerized or automated. Uh, all that may be left are the chances that we have as human beings to uh, enjoy our company with each other. And so I hope that I've, I've been able to foster some sense of community and camaraderie in the last few years among like-minded people, people who aren't interested in the transactionalism or the, the, uh, the favoritism necessarily, but who also care about building long-term relationships for the sake of it and not only for the sake of career. Uh, so all, all flow charts aside, yeah. I be important <laughs> thoughts, Richard. I mean, any, well, I, I, I really, I'm, I really appreciate you sharing that. And you talk about, I guess, a, a term, maybe the collegiality that, that of your, your, your mother's era, who, who's, who's legendary. Uh, it helps me put into context a bit by uh, of what you're doing. And I, you know, I, 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 you know, our crack, graphics team put that together and you know partly as as, as in good humor but there's there's truth in that because there is nobody i'm not a washington insider but you know as far as i know there is nobody who uh is as i say as as affable and a welcoming convener as you are uh, you know and and you know overseas or if you were in the region you know in the gulf you know they might call them salons or diwanias or that sort of thing and and it really is i think people see as sort of josh's diwania um, it's an opportunity for like-minded people who have, who, who, who uh, uh, appreciate and respect each other. And as you say, over time have built up, uh, you know, a, a, a trust with one another. And I think it's a unique service. Service is the wrong term. It's a unique uh, privilege to be part of it. And I think it's a, uh, it's, it's a treasured contribution to the dialogue that you, you have fostered. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that because you're a guest on our show. Uh, and I don't say that because you're a friend of mine. I say that because there's nothing else like it. What you do, nobody else does in, in Washington, D.C. That's um, one of the nice things in, in my position, in my job. The, the most I found over the years, the most valuable thing you can do in Washington for anybody is to introduce him or her to someone else who has common interests. You don't have to share any information. You have to share any knowledge. You don't have to share anything specialized or secretive. Uh, you can just be yourself and be a nice person and introduce one friend to another. And already by doing that, you're, 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 uh, you're helping to foster relationships and connections that wouldn't normally happen. Uh, too many people in this town are too uh, closeted or too uh, too uh, protective of their contacts of their of their their Rolodex. And um, the greatest service that any one person can do in the city is to uh, share who they know with others. 
Yeah, uh, and and not everybody looks at it that way, which 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 you know adds particular value to the fact that you do, especially as you know as 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 well connected as you are, and and well connected. I say as I said at the beginning because of your curiosity, your effort to reach out, your your uh, your openness. So, I mean, this is these are all uh, things that I've discovered. And I think our viewers and our listeners hope they enough, enough, understand enough. that. It's but. very nice of you, but let's get to actual substance. I just want to say at the beginning, um, everything I'm saying in, in this uh, lecture today is in my personal views. None of it reflects the U.S. government or the views of the U.S. government um, appearing in my personal capacity. And I have permission from the department to do this. And I want to thank all the folks at the department, including the press and public diplomacy folks at the NEA Bureau for their, uh, their kind uh, permission and support for allowing me to appear in my personal capacity today. Let me go back, take a step back and just explain why I chose this topic. When I started the research years ago, uh, I had a number of ideas that I was interested in working on. I wanted to do a topic that would be domestic politics in the Arab Gulf states of some sort. What does that mean, domestic politics? It's hard to define, yet it exists. You know, there are constituencies, they do interact with ruling elites. And there's a, a, a type of, of personal politics that results from it, as I think any, any leading Gulf expert would acknowledge. So I had a number of ideas. First, I happened to meet uh, Adil Tarefi, who at the time was Minister of Information. I had a, a chance to talk to him privately here in Washington. The first idea I threw out for a topic was this idea of, of Iraq-Saudi, but I was mostly interested at the time in Najdi's living beyond the borders, particularly Zubair. Zubair is this town uh, on the Iraqi side of the border, which was a little Najdi outpost for trading, for, uh, for commerce, uh, Najdi families living there who had left for whatever reason, for multiple reasons in the, in the 18th, 19th centuries, settled there and then would use the access to Basra, the access to so the- Josh, the, let me interrupt real fast yeah. for our listeners. Define Najdi. Well, I'll get to that. So, and that's a tough one to define. It, it's not easy. But just, just geographically, it, roughly, I know it's, not, it, it, it's a oh, moving yeah. target, but just for our listeners- I mean, there's, there's no one book that defines Najdi uh, geography or Najdi identity, but generally speaking, uh, Saudi authors tend to talk about uh, the, the Jebel Tuerk uh, in, the, in the middle of the Naj. There's a, a mountain range that runs north-south in the center of the Arabian Peninsula. And the land on either side is definitely considered to be uh, Najd Central. When you start to get farther south or north, there's general consensus that the Wadi Dawasir, for instance, South Central uh, uh, Arabia, is generally part of Najd uh, and, and the, the valley that runs through the Dawasir territory. And farther to the north, the Raudat Suder. And when you get farther north from that, um, uh, Qasim, uh, is definitely or generally considered part of Najd, though some Qasimis will say that that Qasim is its own emirate going back to the 18th century. <laughs> uh, when you get farther, you get into Hayil. Well, Hayil was acknowledged as its own emirate for quite a while. And, and yet there are people that believe that Hayil is, is Najdi in nature, Najdi in character. And there are people in Jauf, when you get even farther, closer towards the Iraq border, who, who would say that Jauf is part of the Najd, there are people that who would say that Jauf is its own uh, territory, its own polity. There's no single 
definition of where these borders extend. And there was never at any point a single political authority that controlled them all. So but it's hard it, to is it, it, is, is, it, is it correct to say that the, the, the nudged and nudgedies is sort of the foundational building block of this, the, the Saudi of Saudi Arabia in terms of, uh, of Ibn Saud? You look at how the people around Ibn Saud defined Najdi, right? Because in these negotiations going on with Iraq about who is a citizen, which tribes belong to which state, there was a lot of back and forth. And some of it's recorded verbatim in the notes of the meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, Abdullah Damluji, the this quasi-foreign minister, the director of foreign affairs in the original directorate of foreign affairs for Saudi Arabia, for, for the, the kingdom of Najd, in his negotiations with the Iraqis, he does make an argument at one point that anyone who's Wahhabi should be considered a citizen of Najd, a citizen of Saudi Arabia. But that's rare. And even he seems to walk that back and, and say, well, this is just one cultural marker among many. The, the, the Saudi state at its beginning wants to claim citizenship for Sunni Arabs who self-identify as Najdi wherever they may live. Mm-hmm. The Saudi state at the beginning, Ibn Saud, argues for a corridor for trade for his citizens to be able to go all the way to Syria. There are certain tribes, certain clans that traditionally traded in caravans all the way up to Syria. And he expected some sort of extraterritorial status that would allow them to continue doing that without needing visas, without needing passports, despite the British link between Jordan and Iraq. Um, the, the, it's not that the goalposts keep moving. It's that the people around Ibn Saud have a little bit of an amorphous definition themselves of what Najdi means. But it's important to note, it's not just a matter of being Salafi. It's not just a matter of being Wahhabi, however you want to define that. Um, The only intellectual of the time who tries to define Najdi nationalism is uh, this, or one of the only people is this really interesting thinker, Suleiman Adakhil. And talking about him is very illustrative of everything that we're getting to in this lecture and the book I'm writing. Because who is Suleiman Adakhil? Well, on the one hand, his family is intermarried with the Al Saud. On the other hand, his family is also intermarried with the Al Rashid in Ha'il, the, the, uh, the mortal enemies of the Al Saud who are laid siege by, by Ibn Saud for quite a while and eventually overtaken in Ha'il. His family straddles both sides of the divide. He himself is a writer and he becomes a newspaper editor, sets up his own newspaper, Ariad, in its first incarnation. But where does he do this? He doesn't do it in the Najd. Even though he's propounding the Najd, his newspaper is called Ariad. He's talking about Najdi nationalism, left and right and center. But he sets it up in Iraq and he lives most of his time in Baghdad, right? This is the place of intellectuals. And he has no problem moving back and forth between Baghdad and, and, and Saudi Arabia. But when he tries to define what it means to be Najdi, he says, and I quote, the people of Najd were in past times, like most residents of Arab lands, mixed from various peoples, among them Arabs and Persians, Armenians and Hebrews, Assyrians and Chaldeans, Babylonians. Can you imagine anyone giving that type of definition of Najdi today? Uh, a mix, a hodgepodge of ethnicities from all over. That's how he, this is, this is someone who dedicated his life and career to propounding a Najdi identity. And yet that's how he defined it, right? So you don't have a literature or a history of defining nudge. But then again, that brings me back to how I chose this topic. I had this concept or this, this idea that I wanted to pursue these 
ethnic Najis, people that self-identified as Najis, but were living in Iraq. Their families had migrated there over time. They had built Salafi mosques. They were trading with their cousins back in the hinterland. And yet they were on the Iraqi side of the border. And when the border's drawn, they are cut off. So what happens to them? Over the decades, up until the 1960s, they slowly migrate. They take Saudi citizenship. And Ibn Saud welcomes them in. And they form a technocratic class within Aramco and within the Royal Diwan. One or two of them end up in the Royal Diwan, and they welcome others to come join them. Why? They're highly educated. You had schools in Zubair at the secondary level, and even to some extent at the collegiate level, that you didn't have in central Najd. So these are people who are Sunni Arabs self-identifying as Najdi, seeing what Ibn Saud do is doing as a source of pride, and they are willing to pack up and move. They don't see a future for themselves in Iraq. So they're welcomed in. This is exactly the type of migration that Ibn Saud is looking for, and he's happy to hand out second passports freely and openly. And we have records of that. We have uh, uh, people who record moments when he was doing this. So I was interested in that. And I said this to Al-Turaif and he turned to his assistant Musa and said, absolutely, you're going to work on that. We're going to give you all the help you can. Now, of course, Al-Turaif was out of the job in about a year. Uh, I then saw Thamar al-Sabhan, who was a very interesting character. And I had a chance to talk to him here in Washington for about an hour. And he asked me, he said, I hear you're working on your PhD. And I laid out the concept for me. He grabbed my arm in a very gentlemanly way and he said, Absolutely, that's what you're going to work on. There are Zuberis in, in Riyadh today with their own modulus who share old photographs and old pictures and get around and tell old stories. I'll introduce them to you, etc. Of course, Thamar al-Sabhan's a bit indisposed the last year or so, so he's not easy to get a hold of. Um, uh, but he's right. And, and I took this topic to the King Abdulaziz Foundation. We gave my summary of my proposed research, to Dr. Fahad Samari, who told his people, of course, support this. It's one of those things I found when you walk around Saudi Arabia and you tell people, I'm working on what you might call greater Najd, Najd al-Kubra. Now, there is no concept greater Najd. It doesn't exist. Nobody's written about this. It's not like greater Syria, where there's this concept of Syrian populations across the Levant and the you know, broader unity. Uh, and yet, when you go around Saudi Arabia and you tell people, this is what I'm working on, Najdi communities living beyond the borders, they immediately know what you're talking about. They have an instant recognition of this. Uh, they're very proud of this. They're very cognizant of it, even if they don't have a language for expressing it, much like you don't have a language for Najdi nationalism. How do you define Najdi nationalists? Well, in the, in the uh, mid-50s, under King Saud, you had a group of people that called themselves Najd al-Fatah, uh, young Najd. These were people like Abdullah Tareki, who were uh, senior government officials who believed we're going to make Riyadh the centerpiece of this kingdom. It's going to be the center of commerce, the center of trade, the center of culture, etc. We're going to move all the ministries from Jeddah to mm -hmm. Riyadh. It's going to be the center of government because the Najd is the center of, of our identity. Uh, those people had a short span in, in office. King Saud didn't last terribly long, yet they had an influence, I suppose, for a time being. So that's where this started and, and that's where it began. But then how do you define Najdi National? How do you define the Naj? It's very difficult. And what I found the more I, I read, the more I, I studied was that so much of what it means to be Najdi was defined in its earliest days in the 1920s when you, you began to have a literature, when you began to have political discourse, when you began to have newspapers, a lot of it was defined the self in terms of the other. And who is the other? It's Iraq. 
where you had a very strong sense of nationalism, where you had a very strong sense of national identity coming out of the 1920 revolution. And so this, the idea is that what they're doing in Riyadh is, is engaging with Iraq. It was the most uh, frequent diplomatic correspondence they had with any country. These are both semi-independent Arab states at this point. Certainly Saudi Arabia is, and Iraq is on its path towards becoming that. And they have, they have a sense of pride in the Arab world for that status. And the diplomatic engagement is intense between them. And it allows for these interactions with a different culture, Arab, yes, the government Sunni in Baghdad at the time, yes, and yet the politics wildly different, almost mm -hmm. like an inverted image, like a black mirror. And that allows for this incredible reflectivity uh, between the two societies. What starts in Saudi Arabia as a diversity of identities, a pluralism, okay? And with a state building effort at unification to bring these different identities together under a single banner, it's almost the opposite in Iraq, where you have a revolution in 1920 in which the common banner under which everyone is flying is, is national unity and national pride, uh, defense against the British occupiers, yet that devolves into pluralism, ethno-sectarian competition. It's moving in the exact opposite direction, almost to the horror of the Saudis down uh, to the south. Um, so there's this, this uh, paradox and it's part of the reason why the two countries really diverge. They just simply don't understand and can't appreciate. And when they do encounter each other's politics, they almost shudder in fear at the, at the, how radically different it is and how hard it is to comprehend. Well, and that's, that's what the different perspectives on those tribes, on that border. Uh, it seemed to me you took that uh, where you have um, from the Saudi side, uh, let's 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 have it. Um, let's go with traditional paths, with the traditional movement, and and an amorphous type of of uh, demarcation, as opposed to the Iraqi side. I guess, as you, as you point out in the book, sort of at at, at British uh, with British encouragement. No, let's demarcate it hard and fast. And you said there were you know three main baskets of issues. One was the status of the tribes. Two was criminal justice and three fortifications and outposts. And, and I gather that, that, that uh, Saudi Arabia and Ibn Saud looked at it, as you say, the uh, you know, dark mirror diametrically to what the Iraqis looked at it. And, 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 and from what I understand from the book and something that repeated itself throughout, that sort of set the tone for the relationship to this day. The borders created barriers. Barriers, not just on, on the ground, but in people's minds. It was a barrier, the international border of the British created, to the free flow of goods and services. So uh, trade was immediately cut off. That was a threat to the new Saudi kingdom. So much of their trade in the central Najd depended on access to the coast. And that was done through Najdi traders living in Iraq and living in Jordan, living in, in Bahrain and in Kuwait. And Ibn Saud, to his credit, He's not given enough credit for his statecraft, did everything he could to lobby to maintain those networks. He was handing out passports in Kuwait and Bahrain. The British couldn't understand it. They were virulently opposed to it. They didn't appreciate the fact that he was doing it for a purpose. He was doing it to maintain the trade networks so that his people in Najd wouldn't be cut off from basic staples like rice. How else mm -hmm. are they going to get it, right? And how are they going to pay the exorbitant customs fees that are now being imposed by, by the new uh, protectorate governments on, these, on the, the coastal side. Um, 
the barriers that were created by the borders, they cut off social networks. You now have families that have cousins across the border that can't interact the way they once did, can't intermarry the way they once did, can't trade the way they once did. Whereas once upon a time, a caravan coming in off the desert loaded down with dates for sale, with camel lard uh, and camel milk, uh, basic goods that tribesmen would have that barely maintained their subsistence living. It didn't make much of a profit, but it made all they had and they needed it to trade for vital goods at these trading outposts, Zuber, Sukhashayuch, Hamisia, etc. Well, the caravan comes in and the first thing he does is try to find a tribal cousin, someone he trusts who's not going to rob him blind, someone who's not going to raise the prices on him because he knows these tribes are poor and they're desperate and they only come in once a year when the season is good for the grazing uh, and that you can, you can milk them for all they're worth for what little money they have. He's going to look for someone he trusts. Well, these borders and these barriers and the customs agents that are set up and the, the economic competition that's now created under government taxation oversight, this is a huge challenge to the economy and Ibn Saud's doing everything he can. And it's a challenge to the social networking. And the third thing, these borders created uh, a challenge to people's freedom to define their own identity. You look at a group like the Ukelat. The Ukelat, and there's a wonderful study by uh, a scholar, Al-Ibrahim, who, who did this massive study in Arabic on the history of, of the, the, the entity that we know as the Ukelat, showing that these were Najdis who migrated many, many years ago, many decades ago, but who retained their, their Najdi identity and set up trade routes between Damascus and Basra and Mecca and Medina and, and other places, Hayil, going back and forth delivering the post, but also delivering vital goods that uh, these people... Uh, their entire existence was predicated on their transnational nature, their ability to move beyond borders at will and freely. And the international barriers forced them to choose nationalities, forcing them to choose uh, one place to live, to settle, to reside, which ended their way of life in many regards, right? So people's identities mm -hmm. were bound up in, in, in their freedom, their freedom to cross these, these uh, lines in the sand that didn't exist until... Uh, the British start enforcing them and encouraging governments like the Iraqis to start enforcing them. And all these things are challenges to, to Ibn Saud, who's trying to form a unity. He's trying to form a kingdom of, of, of a single identity, a single nature. And, and the British are encouraging all of his neighbors to cut the exact opposite way. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and you can witness Ibn Saud at every step of, of the path trying to come up with creative solutions. Can't we take the wells and the pastures on the Iraqi side, label them as to which tribe owns them, and then give the tribes uh, free movement without visas, without passports, to be able to access them when they need them, uh, to make the border uh, a fuzzy border, just for the purposes of, of the, the tribal ownership of the pastures and the wells, so that they don't have to abandon their livelihood. Uh, and you can see his neighbors in Jordan and in Iraq absolutely rejecting this. We are modern states. We follow the British rules and, and we want to be respected and therefore an end to this lifestyle that will no longer exist. Sorry, go on, Richard. Well, no, and beyond that, uh, you know, the other thing that, you know, according to your book, you know, that Ibn Saud didn't want to see was any kind of fortresses on the border. And, and the Iraqis, in turn, would build their fortresses on what sources of water. So just exactly what you're saying, not only would these tribes come in to their traditional place for water and trade, they'd come and they found it, you know, that an Iraqi fortress has been built on it. 
So there were consequences to all of this and consequences that play out till today. And a lot of that's not stated in the book, but I think Saudi readers and Iraqi readers who, who read the book will understand uh, the effects that all of this had up until now. And that's part of what you wanted to talk about today, but we'll just do it in summary style. The, the failure of diplomacy in this period. Yeah, go on, Richard. You were going to interrupt. Just, a, you know, before you get, you get into that, I'd love if a little discourse digression. So we had Ibn Saud, who was extremely sensitive to the traditional uh, uh, pathways and, and habits of the tribes, why he didn't want his fixed border. Um, but he himself is trying to consolidate the country, and he has to deal with the Ikhwan, who, who present a particular challenge to the Iraqis as well. Can you just talk a little bit about that balancing act uh, uh, in terms of Ibn Saud and the Iraqis? Because you know, that all came to a head in the end of the 20s. And um, and involve the Iraqis, you know, with that, uh, you know, with raids across the border, and and it, in some ways, it, you know, it, it, it as I understand from your your book, it really reinforced the Iraqi commitment to hardening the border. Look, at the time, there were all these accusations on the Iraqi side in the newspapers and the press and politics that uh, what King Abdulaziz was doing was manipulating the situation, allowing these tribesmen to attack and retreat in order to apply political pressure uh, on the Iraqi government. Um, uh, scholars who have written about this relationship, uh, Arab scholars, because this topic's never been really done in English before, but Arab scholars who came along, a lot of Iraqis and Palestinian or two uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, what they tried to emphasize was a, a bit by more biased, a little more uh, cold-hearted. They tried to depict uh, King Abdulaziz as, as sort of the, the sheikh leader of the Ikhwan who uh, wants to raid and pillage for its own sake. What I try to do in the book is take a more nuanced approach and try to, to understand from King Abdulaziz's perspective, what was, what was the distinction here? There are times when a raid occurs and he always apologizes. He was an incredibly uh, uh, diplomatic uh, person. The minute a raid happened and it came to his attention, he would immediately fire off a letter to the British saying uh, the loss of life is unacceptable and such violence should never be condoned. And I certainly ha uh, had no role in this and nor should I. Um, I think what I do in my book is, as I say, well, th there, there was a more nuanced way to understand all this that King Abdulaziz didn't condone violence necessarily, but he made a distinction between military targets and non-military targets. There were particular attacks, for instance, on the site of Abirar uh, in 1922, spectacular attack and several people were killed. Uh, it became a cause celeb in Iraqi politics. It became an excuse for clerics in Najaf and Karbala to protest uh, in enormous conferences of thousands of people the need to replace the, the government in Baghdad. If the Sunni-led government in Baghdad can't protect us and their British allies are friends with, with King Abdulaziz, then they all need to go. The British need to go. The Sunni government in Baghdad needs to go. And we, the Shia clerics and our Shia political allies in Najaf and Karbala, we need to be running this country. It's the emergence of a sectarian discourse. And it happens with the, uh, the, the Ikhwan raids as a lightning rod, as an inspiration for it. 
something like that, where does it begin? Where, where is the impetus? Is King Abdulaziz responsible for this? What I try and say is not necessarily the, the Ikhwan and the tribes that they represent had interests of their own. These were border populations before there was a border and they crossed over and dealt with their neighbors in their own way. And they didn't care for the border or what the border meant to them. They wanted to continue pursuing their localized interests as all border communities do uh, until reality hits them in the head in the form of a national uh, centralized government coming and beating them up. Um, <laughs> that being said, you can find something like the Abigar attack. You can, you can find enough evidence to say that King Abdulaziz may have allowed it to happen, but why? In his mind, in the minds of, of the folks in Riyadh, that was a military target. That was a fortified outpost that the Iraqis were using to militarize the border. They weren't just putting policemen out there, Birka um, Hajanna, uh, these camel cavalry units. Uh, they were doing more than that. They were pre-positioning munitions for British Royal Air Force units, okay? And why do you need that? Well, you, you can argue the British simply want to police the Iraqi tribes to keep them from causing trouble and doing their own raids. But if you're sitting on the Najdi side of the border, I, I would clearly see a threat perception there. And I would imagine those RAF units are equally directed against my tribes and my people who are also conducting raids. Mm -hmm. And that's not allowed according to any of these treaties that had just been signed in 1921, 1922. It was very clear there will be no fortifications along the border. It's a demilitarized zone. That's, again, something that holds till today. The Saudi government even today envisions demilitarized zones on its northern and southern borders and has for many decades now. It's always had trouble winning agreement or concurrence from the Iraqi government or from the Yemeni government with Ali Abdullah Saleh for many years. They demanded, uh, a first it was a, a five kilometer, then a 15 kilometer, then a 30 kilometer DMZ. Uh, we're going to move the villages away from the border, et cetera. Um, a lot easier to do on the Iraqi side where the Badia is so empty and so, so vacant, a little harder to do on the Yemeni side. But the Saudis really did try to implement that through the Ministry of Interior to try and move people back. And getting the Yemeni government to concur was almost impossible. I, I imagine they would want the same thing from the Houthis today if they were ever to recognize them as a legitimate government. Uh, that would be equally a challenge, no better succeeding there than they did with the Ali Abdullah Saleh government. <laughs> um, but the, the point being that there's a significant difference between allowing the raid on Abigar in 1922, expressing regret for the loss of life, though admitting that the loss of life was largely among military personnel, okay? Uh, you may claim it's police personnel, but they served a dual role in those days. And a, a difference between that and some of the raids that were being undertaken in 1927, 1928, when eventually you lead to Sibylla and the, the confrontation between King Abdulaziz and the Ikhwan, at which point the Ikhwan have extended themselves too far, taken on too much initiative, gone after civilian targets in ways that that only hurt the reputation of the Saudi kingdom. Uh, but suffice to say, there, there was a nuanced strategic understanding by King Abdulaziz as to what was permissible, what was not permissible. And there was both an ethical element to it and a military element to it, at least in his mind from what I see. Uh, and it, it's, it's complacent of historians to simply label all these things as quote unquote Wahhabi, extremist violence. Uh, I can imagine feeling that way as a victim of such an attack. 
but from the Najdi perspective, you can make an argument that uh, what the Iraqis had done was an escalation that could have led to war and that this was tit for tat. So I derailed you there, Josh. You were you were gonna uh, you were gonna bring us bring us forward. Well, uh, some of the things that the subtext, right? There's a subtext. One is that what happens in this early formative period, okay, shapes a number of aspects of of the kingdom and how the kingdom views itself, how the government behaves, interacts diplomatically and and domestically. So number one is the Saudi style of diplomacy. I devote a section to this. You can find King Abdulaziz in the earliest days engaging directly in diplomacy, laying out specific demands and real creative strategies for tackling the problems, the bilateral issues. And you can uh, watch step by step by step how he uh, encounters uh, obstacles, challenges, largely in the form of Nuria Said, uh, but other politicians as well that, that are engaged in their own politicking in Baghdad. He doesn't understand the in, internal dynamics of politics in Baghdad. He doesn't need to. It's not his job. But he does recognize that it's getting in the way of agreements, of meaningful agreements and confidence building measures, which he's looking for. And you can increasingly see by the 1930s, King Abdulaziz retreating back into himself adopting a more passive aggressive approach to diplomatic engagement. So that meetings now begin with foreign interlocutors with an hour long lecture about the history of the relations between our two countries, leaving maybe five minutes at the end for actual substantive discussion in which King Abdulaziz doesn't wanna commit himself to anything and doesn't make any promises. Now, a lot of diplomats around the world will lament that the way that they interact with senior Saudi interlocutors to this day at that level, that's very hard to get uh, concrete promises and to get business done. But I would argue that's not a failing of the Saudi government. That's the result of a, a long history, a pattern of, uh, in the early formative period, of attempts to constructively diplomatically engage and, and being thwarted or finding difficulty overcoming the political obstacles of the country that they're engaging with which was largely Iraq in the earliest days. Mm-hmm. And they did some diplomacy with Iran and they did some diplomacy with, with a number of other countries and the, the Soviets even. Uh, but Iraq was certainly the most, most intense action that they faced and it shaped the way that, that they viewed. So then another, another aspect that, that emerged from all this is an understanding by the Saudi government of, of a world around them in which there are friends and enemies of the kingdom. There are friends of the kingdom and enemies of the kingdom. Um, In the book, at least, I try to draw three different categories of the way that the Saudi government came to see friends of the kingdom, right? There were uh, first category people who felt a professional duty to engage with Saudi Arabia. I I go at length at at Sabeh Nishat, who was a wonderful uh, diplomatist and, uh, and civil servant in the early days of the Iraqi government who engaged with Saudi Arabia and negotiated treaties because he felt it was in the best interests of his country. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't play any games. It was his job to do it. And he did it. And he did it well to the best of his abilities. Uh, There's a second category in in Saudi minds. There were uh, foreigners, uh, foreign officials, foreign diplomats who engaged with Saudi Arabia because they had familial relationships. 
they had a family in Najd, they had a shared identity with Najd, and the very clear example of Abdul Latif al-Mandil. He's living in Zubair, he's running businesses in Basra, uh, he becomes a, a, a member of the cabinet in Iraq in the early 1920s, yet he sees himself as Najdi, and his family manages the business interests of King Abdulaziz in Iraq, okay? Mm. Uh, when Ibn Saud first proposes the idea of a national oil company and he has the concept of selling shares to Najdi, so it'll be a publicly held company, uh, he authorizes Abdul Tifa Mandil to be the representative for this entity in Iraq and to collect uh, payouts and, and hand out shares, though the idea doesn't get very far in this early stage. But that was at least an idea that he had. And Abdul Dhifman Mandil, he is Zuberi with these types of family relationships in the Najd. So there was a reason for him to interact and engage on that level. Uh, and then there's a third category of friends of the kingdom, as the Saudis saw it. There were uh, foreigners who only saw personal or political gain for engaging with the Saudis. And here we have Nuria Said, we have Rashid Ali al Gailani, people who realized if I can play my cards right, I can engage with the Saudis, go back to Baghdad and spin it to my political favor or to my personal uh, profit. These were fair, uh, fair weather friends. And these sort of mental categories of friends of the kingdom, I think you can still find them in Saudi discourse today. You can go to Riyadh and ask them what they think of this foreign leader, that foreign leader. And I think some, some people in Riyadh at least will still kind of throw around these terms and kind of uh, uh, view them in these categories. Uh, some people will at least. So getting back to then things that carry through to today, um, I think one thing that the Saudis learned in this formative period, engaging with these uh, Najdi communities in Iraq and welcoming them uh, to the Naj to take up citizenship and the like, they gained an appreciation that there are different constituencies within the kingdom uh, that are unique and that need to be treated accordingly. Uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't a national identity being uh, propounded by the Saudi government nationally. There is. You can look at the work recently of Michael Farquhar, his book, Circuits of Faith. It's a, it's a fantastic book. Or you can look at Nadav Salman, Blood and Sand, which is an outstanding book as well, at ways that the discourse um, among different uh, Najdi Salafi communities wants to uh, spread or impose itself or influence the way that non-Najdi or non-traditionalist uh, constituents view themselves. Uh, yet I find nonetheless, there's at least a recognition by the Saudi government in the early period, and that goes till today, that you have to let people in the provinces live their own lives. You can't fully impose a single order the way, for instance, that Gamal Abdel Nasser tried to do in the provinces when he took power. Um, you, you, you can't uh, appoint your own local officials from the capital and change provincial politics uh, wholesale. Uh, you can create governor governor councils and you have to allow local ayun, local notables, with their longstanding familial uh, uh, control over domestic politics in that corner of the kingdom to maintain a presence on those governorate uh, councils. And that holds true till today to some extent as well. Um, I think in a more superficial sense, originating in that period and continuing through today, there's always a desire to engage Iraq. There's a feeling of a need to, to uh, be part of what's going on in Iraq, um, especially to engage with the Sunni Arab communities in Iraq. 
But from a Saudi perspective, there's also this intense fear of getting too entangled in the politics of Iraq. So there's an ambivalence about it. But above all, above all, and the last thing I'd say on this, uh, in that formative period, there's an effort to create a single identity based on loyalty to the kingdom that does exist. Uh, but again, uh, it, it, it is balanced with a need to allow provincial communities to maintain their own sense of self and self-worth. And you can see that dichotomy, that, that, uh, that thin line between the two playing out today between tradition and modernity. Um, look at what's going on with Niam up in the far northwest of the country. Uh, a lot of the local society there is going to be bulldozed. Um, they've tried to choose a patch of territory where you have far less urban life and, and you have a lot more rural, empty land to work with so mm -hmm. that you're not disturbing local communities. Um, uh, but it's a challenge. It's, it's, you know, if you go to Riyadh, uh, even as they're doing these giga projects that will transform society and transform culture, you can watch on TV the latest programs, one of which is this wonderful guy who goes around to local communities all over the kingdom just to experience the games that the children play and the sayings of the elders and the foods that they eat. And it's one of the most popular programs you're going to get, cultural programs in Riyadh. It's absolutely fantastic. You learn about very localized society, something that could have never happened 10 years ago. Just 10 years ago, people in one corner of the kingdom had no clue how people in the other corner of the kingdom lived. And the government's trying to change that as well at the same time that it's transforming how society has lived. Richard? That's fascinating. That you talked about Neom and sort of the greenfield, although not entirely greenfield, but much less inhabited. But, you know, they're having this challenge in Jeddah as they're trying to, to um, uh, modernize and, and, and you know, basically reconstruct whole swaths of, of Jeddah and, and uh, they're investing $20 billion that, you know, proposed, you know, it's a true little challenge at the, at the ground level. I remember going up to Tabuk once, meeting up with a friend and we went to Hockle. Now Hockle is the farthest Northwest corner. It's right across from Aqaba and from Eilat. And on the hillsides up above Hockle, they've taken in green, green uh, uh, lights. They've projected uh, uh, verses from the Quran. So you can see them in Israel? Although I think it's so far away that, that if you're sitting on, in those ports, you, you just see little green dots in the, in the far distance, right? <laughs> You've got to read Arabic too. <laughs> it's very clever. And, um, and I remember going there and uh, seeing... Saudi citizens uh, going for a late afternoon swim in the ocean, in the Red Sea, fathers and sons going and playing in the, in the, in the ocean. It was, it was wonderful in, in the, the sea. Um, I went with, with a friend and we, we went to, up to the fish market because there, there were uh, fathers with their sons fishing off the coast. And, they, and we saw them taking their fish to the fishmongers, largely Pakistanis and, and Indians, and selling them. We caught this today. We'd like to sell it. We had a good time fishing. Thank you. <laughs> so we went and we asked, could we eat any of this? And, and they said, oh, absolutely. We'll cook it right here. Anything you like. You pick out which fresh fish you want of any sort, and we'll make it any way you like. And so uh, we had the best meal of our lives. It was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and on the way out, we drove past the, uh, the one site in town, which is the Funduk al-Rus al Lubnani. Uh, we had a laugh at that. It was hilarious. <laughs> and all that's going to be lost someday. And it's going to be sad. Why is it sad? Because these were things you'll never get anywhere else in the Gulf. 
um, I can't imagine having that experience. I mean, maybe you can in some in some way, shape, or form. But we were on the edge of of uh, nowhere of the world, and yeah, not not it it wasn't nowhere because when we were there, it became somewhere for us. Right. It felt not like you were in nowhere. It felt like you had slipped into another universe. It felt like you had slipped into the 1970s. If you if you want to think of it in terms of the rhetoric of, of Mohammed bin Salman, we slipped into a time before the Iranian revolution when life was a little bit different in Saudi Arabia. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. But at least <laughs> it felt that way. And you felt like you were experiencing uh, the, a traditional side of Saudi Arabia that might not be around too much longer. And that's something I would mourn. That's something I would I would regret to see lost. And I hope it's preserved. I I, I hear you. It, it seems inevitable inevitable that these things pass, uh, uh, much to our regret. You in this book, you spent a lot of time with Ibn Saud. You did a lot of research. Um, you delved deeply into. What might be, and I, you know, you couldn't always. You were very careful never to speculate too much. But you know what he was thinking, his frustrations, his hopes. Tell me a little bit. Tell us a little bit about Ibn Saud. What, what, yeah. what was he like? His dialect is fantastic. I absolutely love it. There are there's a ton of correspondence that survives. Okay, the problem is, from what I've seen at least, you know, more than half of it's probably written by Yusuf Yassin. And Yusuf Yassin, the, the court scribe and, and almost the chief of staff in the royal court in many ways, um, uh, a very intelligent individual and a very delicate uh, person in his correspondence, he translates what his boss, King Abdulaziz, is trying to say very professionally and very thoroughly, but he does it in a much more eloquent way. You can usually tell when Yusuf Yassin's writing the letter, but sometimes you can tell when he's taking dictation and he's writing verbatim uh, on... King Abdulaziz's orders, and and then it gets a lot of fun translating. Uh, you get these these passages like you know, uh, your uh, uh, your limb. Uh, it's a it's it's saying uh, he has been informed. What it's really saying is you know what I'm telling you to do, and you know I'm not going to ask you twice. So whatever I'm ordering you to do, it's done. And he can say it all in one word, okay? It's brilliant. Uh, sometimes he swears in a delicate way. Uh, he'll say, for instance, in one letter, walla, uh, walla, warabalbait. Um, you know, I, I swear by Allah, by the, by rabalbait is a very, a very strong term, by the, the master of Mecca, by the Lord of Mecca. He'll often do that when he wants to drive a point home and he's feeling very passionate about it. Um, one thing I found contrary to all that all these, these um, pan-Arab authors, these Iraqi authors, these Palestinian authors, when they try and talk about uh, King Abdulaziz and his personality, they'll sort of ascribe all of these Arab nationalist views to him, all these, these ideas of pan-Arab glory. I find that's not the case at all. I find that he deploys that as a tactic, as a diplomatic tactic. He'll talk about the need to preserve the ummah, the need to preserve the, the Arab cause and the Muslim cause He'll do it almost as a stalling tactic when he's not happy with the way diplomatic talks are going, or he's not happy with the way that his country is being treated by another government. And uh, he'll do that to remind them, we are all brothers here, so we shouldn't be having these disputes. And you should be letting me, uh, you should be listening to what I'm trying to tell you because there's a point to it. 
I find that that it's a very delicate, very considered way of of getting a point across and asking his interlocutors to think more carefully about what they're saying. It's not necessarily that he's propounding Islamic unity necessarily, though he may also have cared about that. That's not saying that he didn't. Um, we're discussing all this today. I just want to be clear because this is uh, we're doing this through the 966, which is the U.S.-Saudi trade group. We could have this entire discussion that we're having right now about Iraq. Half the book is about politics in Iraq. And I hope we'll have a chance to do that in another forum another day, talk about what this period, what Saudi meant for Iraq and what the Iraqis felt about all this. But, you're, but since the topic and the audience today is Saudi-focused, we're talking Saudi, and, and that's the point. Now, to say all that about Ibn Saud and everything we've said previously, what it means is that I've lent a greater strategic depth and strategic insight, a diplomatic uh, sharpness to his thought and his thinking that you're not going to find in a lot of other writings. You're going to find such simplistic uh, motivations mentioned in so many other authors. And what I've tried to do is resuscitate the, the, a nuance that doesn't exist in a lot of the literature, certainly not in the English language literature. And I hope that Saudi readers will appreciate that, that the way King Abdulaziz is portrayed in Western literature is very two-dimensional and very superficial in many, many regards. And I've tried to break through that and show that there's a personality here and it's, it's a deeply thinking one. He may not have been intensely educated in, in Western contexts, but he was a very sharp-minded individual who observed what went on around him and, and had a keen sense of how he fit into it. I, I think you captured that. I think there's a, there's a sense, you know, for those of us who uh, educated just enough to, to not understand, actually, you know, you think of, a, of Ibn Saud as, you know, you know um, at the head of the white army conquering the peninsula and, and subjugating the Hashemites and, and this and that very, um, very almost territorial base, you know, he did this, he got that, he finished then, you know, they consolidated in 1932. This, big, this, this really added dimension to, to him. And, and you mentioned, you know, maybe he wasn't an Arab nationalist, but you could see him thinking in the larger picture. And uh, where Saudi Arabia, again, even before it was, a, you know, 1932, even before it was officially a country, um, you know, thinking about Saudi Arabia in the larger picture, how it stood within the globe and within the region. And that's important. That's important even today. And that's another thing that comes out of this period and holds through very much to today. The, the Saudi government does not want to be treated as a leading Arab government or a first among Arab equals or even a dominant power within the Arab or in the Gulf uh, region. It wants to be treated as an international player. King Abdulaziz wanted to be treated as, as a credible ruler in his own right, not as a credible Arab ruler or a credible Muslim ruler, but as a credible ruler, period. As someone who was uh, deserving and capable and, and should be treated by counterparts around the world as an equal. And that's just as true today as it, as it was then. And, mm -hmm. and it's not always appreciated by, by foreign governments and foreign uh, publics. I think that's fascinating. You draw that parallel because that sentiment is very strong in Riyadh today, and and uh, I, I just that's an interesting arc that you draw, because we're talking from the 1920s to the 20, you know, the 2020s. Um, fascinating. That's King Faisal's career um, entirely. It's it's an effort to be treated with respect and an effort to be treated on parity. Uh, to some extent, 
that's King Fahd in his early days when he's crown prince and he's looking to carve out a portfolio of his own, define his own foreign policy agenda, even as crown prince. And then his early years in the, in the early 80s, dealing with Lebanon, dealing, he doesn't want to engage with Lebanon in 1982 as one player among others, the Syrians and, and the Israelis, etc. He doesn't send um, um, Bandar bin Sultan as, as envoy to negotiate what at that time was uh, Rafiq Hariri's first attempt to become prime minister and failed attempt at the time. He wants the kingdom to be seen by America and by the Soviets and by others as a key player internationally. He's not just engaging in, in these issues in Yemen and Lebanon in the early 1980s for the fun of it or for the sake of representing an Arab voice. He's doing it to be a player on the international stage and this is what's at hand. This is the issue that's, that's you know, available to him. Um, you can make the same case for Abdullah. This is why uh, part of the reason why Abdullah sets up the interreligious and interfaith uh, dialogue center in Vienna because um, he wants to be seen as, as uh, an international player. Uh, there are localized issues that have to be taken on in a localized context for King Abdullah, such, and, and that largely gets handled through the, the National Center for Dialogue, the King, King Abdullah Center for National Dialogue, and the annual events that they would hold on different topics that then would be discussed in the press so that Saudi society can have a chance to debate very sensitive issues like women's rights and roles in society. Uh, that was for a domestic audience, but there was another side to King Abdullah that wanted to be seen by the international community as on par, as, as an equal, as a, a player in that sense. Josh, this has been, this has been fascinating. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Fascinating is a word. I want to thank you, Richard. It's been fantastic. And I want to thank you for letting me come and do this. That was our awesome interview with Joshua Yapfi. Again, you can listen to all these segments online on YouTube. If you just want to listen to the conversations we have or just uh, certain segments, you can do that on YouTube. But Richard, just really a great conversation. I just love this platform because, I mean, uh, you know, three weeks ago, it was a, uh, a young Saudi, Muhammad Al-Haji, uh, talking about, um, you know, he's with Ministry of Health. Two weeks three, uh, two weeks ago, it was another young Saudi, Fatima Al-Hamran, talking about her work with women's health and her work with King Faisal Hospital. You know, last week, it was this amazing political discussion with Dr. John Altman of CSIS. CSIS. Mm -hmm. This week, this discussion with Josh, which is all historical, basically mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia from the you know you know twenties to the to the fifties, uh, and all that went on with Saudi Arabia and Iraq. What it just great. I loved it. Let me just add to that too. Right before that, we had a great interview with Bilal Saab, um, and from that interview, um, we spoke with Colonel Brad Gandy, who heard it and wanted to join the program to follow up on it, and that was all defense and security space. So we really are covering a lot of different subjects here. Um, you know, just to pat ourselves on the back just a little bit. But uh, <laughs> Richard, let's get to it. Let's get to Yella. Beauty. Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. <laughs> we need to get some sort of, we need to get some we sort get of rap song. Yeah, we'll get, a, we'll get a canned thing we can put in there instead of just laughing every week. <laughs> Number one, Yella. Saudi Arabia's non-oil private sector continue to see robust, robust growth in April. Uh uh, Reuters reports, uh, citing headline seasonally adjusted S&P Global Saudi Arabia Persons Management Index, PMI, stood at 55.7 for the month. A PMI reading over 50 indicates growth. The growth fell slightly from the 66.8 in March as, quote, 
quote, as fears over inflation began to weigh on demand, unquote, the report added. Um, this brought the PMI to a three-month low as companies sharply raised selling charges to pass on higher input costs, costs Bloomberg reports. Non-oil economy, the name of the game for Saudi Arabia. This is very, very encouraging news for them as they push forward with Vision 2030. Very encouraging data. I mean, a lot of this is, you know, the oil economy still drives a lot of what's happening in Saudi Arabia. And that's the goal is to not be as de dependent on that. But um, this is quite encouraging. The oil economy is growing, but so is the non-oil economy. And those are, you know, 56.8 is... Um, is significant. I mean, that was that was the March figure, but um, it's That's pretty the good. PM, yeah, the PMI, PMI yeah, yep. March. Yeah, yep. yeah. The nine nine oil. This is this is uh, a a key pillar of Vision Twenty Thirty to get that non oil uh, revenue up. And uh, there's by any measure, they've done a good job. In 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 2010, uh, non oil revenues were 9.5 percent of government government revenue. That 19 billion. In S in 2020, it was 38 percent at 86 billion. I mean, the you know that's significant. Even in a commodity super cycle, it's projected in 2022 to be 46 percent. Commodity super cycle meaning that you know oil revenues are huge, but even even this year is projected to be almost 50 percent non-oil income, up from 19 9.5 percent in 2010. So you know 12 years ago. So that's really something to hang your hat on if you're if you're if you're Saudi Arabia trying to diversify the economy and, and generate other sources of revenue. Now, uh, some of this obviously is coming from VAT and higher taxes, but a lot of it's coming from from uh, a more productive, more efficient and, and hopefully more prosperous non-oil sector. They're facing some of the same headwinds we are here in the United States, like inflation, um, which started to sort of erode a little bit at that number. But Definitely very encouraging. Richard, we just talked earlier in this program about the tourism sector and, you know, why they're doing it. And, you know, this is one of the reasons they, they want to create jobs that are not in the oil sector. They want to create an economy that isn't oil dependent. Um, oil prices are high now, but they know that they won't always be this way. They weren't a year and a half ago. Uh, so um, just very, very interesting. Interesting. Hope they keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good trend. Um. Yellow number two, oil prices are surging. Will that derail reforms in the oil exporting Middle East? A recent piece in HellenicShippingNews.com wonders, in March, Iraq's oil exports were worth just over $11 billion, the most the country has earned for oil in a month since 1972. Obviously, Iraq can afford to pay for all of its bills this month and the next, but what does that mean for reforms planned before these price rises? Is there even any point to them anymore? Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia's energy minister blames the lack, in, lack of investment for the recent surge in fuel prices. The prince speaking at an aviation summit in Riyadh said the world needed to look at, the ener look at energy security, sustainability, and affordability as a whole. So that Hellenic Shipping News article was interesting. It really looked at Iraq and what uh, we just referenced, commodity supercycle, and all these revenues, elevated revenues and oil producing uh, and exporting countries are enjoying at the moment. And it's a, it's a sort of an age-old question in the region. Uh, it's when they have money, they don't reform. When they don't have money, they feel they need to reform, and they start on reforms. And then when they get money, the reforms wither away. <clears throat> this is a specific concern to Iraq. Um, 
and I think it's still a concern to Iraq, and that's but that's in part because of the way it's governed, the coalition government, especially one that's sort of highly competitive at the moment and unsettled. You know, you, you never know what increased revenues are going to do or go. It's very hard to maintain discipline. Vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia, and we talked about the non-oil income uh, on, on one, um, this is one of the things that I am most hopeful about, Vision 30, and that is the fiscal discipline. <clears throat> and and specifically in, in last November, um, Moody's upgraded uh, Saudi's um, outlook, you know, government outlook to stable, to A1. In April, Fitch essentially did the same thing to outlook to this positive. It's firms that it's, it's A, you know, that's what's his ranking. In both cases, they cited the fiscal discipline. You know, they said, yeah, oil prices are up. Uh, a lot of things are humming along. Uh, but they took a note to, to specifically uh, applaud and commend uh, and highlight the fiscal discipline because Saudi Arabia is not spending more money. It'll have, you know, it's, it's expecting that it's not changing its long-term budget plans because it's got more money, which is a departure in many ways from, from a, a lot of other oil producing countries in the past. And, um, and that's, and, 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 you know, rating, rating organizations are recognizing that private sector is understanding it. They can, you know, they can look and they can project better. It's just, it's just this fiscal balance program and the fiscal sustainability program that is part of Vision 2030 is a, a hidden hero because it's, you know, it's infusing, it's demanding discipline and long-term planning from the government on its spending, which is huge. Yeah, this piece in Hellenic Shipping News quotes our homie, Robert Mogulnicki, um, who was actually on this program a few months ago, sort of discussing what you discussed. It, it, this you know, higher prices. Um, what it will do, he says, is make it easier to carry out reforms, which he argued won't be abandoned. There's no doubt we're moving forward to- toward a greener future. It's just unclear when that's going to happen. That's why states are making a huge push to forge into new energy markets such as hydrogen. It's basically, it's not going to stop them from making reforms. It's just going to help them buy time and and make it easier to do that and invest in these reforms, as you just mentioned. So um, very interesting. Check out that article. It <clears> is on our website, suscd.com, uh, and we'll put it on the 966podcast.com as well. But Good just stuff. to close that thought, historically, uh, when you've got a, a patriarchal stovepiped government, in other words, where, uh, you know, 10 years ago, you had any number of power centers, all of whom these, uh, you know, the, the resident ministers or princes would get their part of the, the, the um, you know, a windfall. And uh, the government was employing 85 to 90% of the population. You know, if times were good, they got a raise, they got a, you know, a holiday bonus. Um, all that's gone. Mm-hmm. You don't have those sort of, uh, you know, unexpected, uh, unscripted bounces. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was kind of surprised and, and it's, it's, I think it's telling uh, that over Ramadan, King Salman ordered uh, a, a uh, Saudi, two billion Saudi real payments to um, citizens' bank accounts, and therefore widows, orphans, unemployed, elderly. And you know, it was a generous, you know, uh, gesture on the part of the season. Um, and two two billion Saudi reals is about five hundred million dollars. They can they have that, um, but you know, you used to see this all the time you know, sort of just mm-hmm. off budget things. And, 
And you don't, when, when times are good, you don't see that. I think this is a lovely gesture and King Salman is a very uh, well-meaning, generous person, but um, you, you know, this is actually now the exception, no longer the rule. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Number three, um, Lionel Messi arrives in Jeddah after being unveiled as Saudi Arabia's new tourism ambassador. Global soccer star Lionel Messi is Saudi Arabia's newest tourism ambassador, according to a report in Arab News. In a message posted on Twitter, Saudi Tourism Minister Ahmed Al-Khatib wrote, quote, I am pleased to welcome Lionel Messi to Saudi Arabia. We are excited for you to explore the treasure of the Red Sea, the Jeddah season, and our ancient history. This is not his first visit to the kingdom, and it will not be his last, unquote. Messi arrived at King Abdulaziz International Airport in Jeddah, accompanied by a group of friends. Richard, I have a friend who absolutely loves Messi, was devastated when he left Barcelona to go to PSG um, as he lives in Barcelona. But um, this is really cool. This is one of the Messi is one of the highest profile athletes in the world. I mean, you know, top tier. Um, this is really cool for them. It's also big for Saudi soccer. I mean, it's we've talked a lot about sports and everything in Saudi Arabia, but this is inspirational. Young Saudis that get to see Lionel Messi, if it's if he happens to be their hero, visit their country. That's cool. Um, this is big. Well, it is. It's fascinating. But is he? Is this an official capacity or is this a one-off visit to Jeddah? I don't know. I, I, um, I couldn't. I, you know, the, you know, he. I, I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell. I mean, and I think it's awesome. And actually, Messi has been, I think, STC during during the, the Riyadh season had a, a long running, you know, uh, promotion with the Messi. And it remember, I don't know if you see it, you know, a young kid who keeps saying seeing Messi at various Riyadh season events, and you know, turns around to tell his parents, and then he turns around, Messi's gone. So anyway, that's a whole narrative there. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, he's done some stuff. Uh, I just couldn't tell if this is official capacity or a one-off, you know, this is, you know, I guess they, I guess he and his PSG teammates, you know, had, had some time off. So I, they, they flew over to, to Saudi. So let's see, maybe he'll do it again. Maybe it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. I wonder what's involved in being a sports ambassador like this. There aren't a lot of details in this article, but it is interesting. Of course we have the world cup coming up in the region and Qatar later this year. Um, well, yeah, and PSG is owned by the Gutteries. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm sure he got, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But it'll be interesting if this is a repeat, if this is a repeat thing, you know, if he shows up in Doria or something and, and it's a, an ongoing thing, but yeah, it's, and this is part of the, part of the, the, you know, we talked about uh, in year one, big thing, the tourism effort, you know, it's one part of it. You promote, promote, promote. Now that, you know, they've, they have effectively and aggressively used influencers to to sell Saudi Arabia. This is a this is an awesome influencer. He's so good. It's so great to just watch messy highlight reels on YouTube. It's kind of yeah. unbelievable how good he is. Net worth five hundred million dollars, according to CelebrityNetWorth.com. Really, that's pretty good. So they it's must not, have offered him a good amount of money to that's do not this. Better. Yeah, it's higher now. <laughs> <laughs> they better update their article. Um, <laughs> Number four, Saudi Arabia plans to invest $32 billion in its mining and mineral sector. According to reports, some of the projects considered for investment include a $4 billion steel plate factory and a $2 billion EV battery metals plant. As part of the plan, the country intends to support the development of nine mining projects for midstream minerals and metals that aim to support the exportation of mineral products. 
Um, you know, we were talking about the tourism industry earlier, and you can we could you know you, if you're watching over a, a span of time, you can see how things are falling. You can see the the plan. You can see the the hope and the, the how the attempt has been scripted. Um, you can do that here with mining too. I mean, it's fascinating how mining. So you know they they wanted they want mining to be their third pillar in terms of their major major industries. You know, oil. Um, um, petrochemicals and mining. Um, but like oil and petrochemicals, you know, they seed all sorts of other industries. And, and one of the interesting things about these articles, I guess, I guess in Saudi, there's 48 minerals have been found so far, including such important energy transition metals as copper and zinc. Um, the mineral resources minister, Bandar al-Kharaya said, Saudi Arabia re, uh, is at, the, one of the reasons it's en- emphasizing this mining investment is that it is becoming more and more essential for the advancement of manufacturing and energy industries. Like you said, for the steel you mentioned, for the shipbuilding and the EV factory. So you can see it uh, not only expanding on its own right as a sector, but also how they see it uh, feeding into and integrating and, and synergizing other sectors. Um, again, these grand, grand plans, grand announcements, and then you see them slowly come along, slowly mm-hmm. come along. Like again, just like that hundred billion for the for the um, aviation construction and expansion. You know, this thirty-two billion again is not thirty-two billion they're going to take out of their pocket and put in. They're hoping to attract, mm-hmm. um, and you know, hopefully they will. And they've put out. I think there's what one hundred and forty-five applications for foreign companies are being assessed by the ministry for now, for right now. So. You know they think they can get there, so that 32 billion is a, is a goal. It's not a reality. Same like the 100 billion. But again, back to the beginning. You can see mining not only muscling up on its own, but also now spawning offshoots into other industries and in a supporting capacity and a, and a feeder capacity uh, that build you know you know make the the ecosystem that much more complex and the jobs you know job opportunities that much greater. It was just last month that we talked about the Hanagia mining site that now has eight qualified international companies bidding for it. I guess eight local and international, but a handful of international companies are bidding on um, that site, which is the largest exploration site in Saudi Arabia. It covers an area of more than 350 square kilo- kilometers. Vast potential here, and a lot of it's not really totally known or understood, but it's you know it's an opportunity and it is it is opening up to investment. So, and we actually did do a segment on the Hanagia site. Um, and I know that because I can pronounce Hanagia. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just just interesting, more progress in the sector, definitely. And very similar to the tourism sector and others, like you mentioned. Yeah, carry on. Good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, five, Saudi Space Commission, uh, NASA and NASA Explore Space Cooperation. The chairman of the board of directors of the Saudi Space Commission, Engineer Abdullah Amir Al-Sawaha, uh, held a meeting with Pamela Melroy, the deputy administrator to, to, of NASA, to discuss opportunities for strategic cooperation in the development of the space sector, as well as investment in future joint projects to achieve a mutual, mutual economic and strategic goals. This meeting was part of a tour which included visits to American institutions and companies working in the space sectors with the goal of enhancing the commission's efforts in developing the sector and cooperating with various international space and technology organizations. I think it was in 2020, Richard, but Saudi Arabia announced then that it was going to invest $2.1 billion in the space program. Um, very interesting. A very uh, another another sector, another 
area in which there's tremendous promise beyond what we can understand right now. Heard a great interview this week um, on, I believe it was the New York Times, The Daily, talking about investing in space and why we should do it when we have so many problems in, you know, here at Earth, on on our home planet here on Earth. Um, (laughs) And the answer was essentially that a lot of our technologies that we have today came from space exploration, um, stuff that came along with that. So um, definitely really cool. Yeah, Tang for one. Tang, that's right. Um, there is a cool list of, uh, I should pull it up. There's a cool list of stuff that ca- came directly from our space program, you know, products that came from that. Um, really cool. <laughs> the first Saudi in space is also the first Arab and Muslim and Royal in space. Prince Sultan bin Salman, um, went into space. I think it was in the eighties, Richard. I could have that wrong. I believe uh, so. But that's, that's cool. <clears throat> that's a great, uh, dinner party. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, thing to be able to claim. To drive people away. <laughs> hey, did you know? Did you know uh, I went into space? Um, I think I, I want a canopy over there. Well, it's, and you know, <laughs> this is obviously very surface level, but uh, space is the future. Um, you know, I know that from watching Star Trek and Star Wars a lot, but, um, <laughs> it, you know, that's where, that's where a lot of money's going now. Bezos, Elon Musk, a lot of people are investing into space travel. There's a lot being invested Absolutely. into space defense and space security. United States Space Force was launched under President Trump. So, um, pretty cool. On the, uh, also in town last week was the Minister of Communications and Information Technology mm-hmm. for Saudi Arabia. And he was meeting with uh, Secretary of Commerce people to talk about alliances to promote the growth of digital economy innovation. And I know why you put this in here in the yellow. Uh, Lucian, do you want to you want to take that one? No, you go ahead. <laughs> uh, it's just an example. So Princess Rima bin Band- bin Bandar, uh, you know, was in all these meetings. It's just an example of of oh, yeah. the institutional. Uh, interaction that is ongoing, no matter the politics. And, uh, you know, I'm delighted to see this always because I think it's, I think we have, you know, U.S. has private sector, academic government resource, resources that can be useful to Saudi Arabia's transition and what they're trying to achieve. So it's wonderful when you see key folks like the Space Commission and, you know, uh, Minister of Communications and Information in, in, in town, in the U.S., talking with people looking for partnerships, looking for, you know, joint ventures and support, because that just reinforces the existing ties that, that are very strong and ongoing. Mm-hmm. And Princess Rima did share that on, I believe, Instagram, the photo um, with Lockheed there at the embassy. Yeah, just cool. I mean, that is that is that is the reason there's just like a sort of uncelebrated, unsung, you know, country to country cooperation going on here that is not going to make the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times, but it's still evidence that this relationship remains strong just below the surface. Yeah. So very cool. Um, Yella number six and our final Yella, and hopefully we don't go too long with this, but we are checking the (laughs) golf box again. The PGA Tour said it will not allow players to compete in the Saudi-backed Super League next month. According to The Athletic, the PGA Tour has denied its players the ability to play in the first event of the Saudi-backed Super Golf League in London. Members who requested permission to compete were denied on Tuesday per Golf Week, who was the first to break the news. The event, taking place from June 9th to 11th at the Centurion Club, is opening tournament is the opening tournament, tournament of the Live Golf Invitational Series. The 
news actually on the on this has developed significantly since Tuesday. Yeah, but it doesn't change really. I mean, basically, the lawyers are going to get paid, uh, and you know, uh, I'm delighted it's getting started because this just needs to. This need, we need to get past the prologue and all this, all this storm, storm and drong, um, and and let the let the league start. See what happens. You know, I, I thought one of the most telling things is, is Greg Norman recently said. You know, they've got an infusion of cash. They're gonna. You know, we're we're, we're not just talking about 2023, 2024, 2025. We're looking way beyond that. We're looking at decades which has got to make the PGA very concerned. But the fact is, if this is going to work, it's got to take the long view because the short view has become very contentious. You know, um, the Phil Mickelson phenomenon, you know, has distorted it. And I I don't know if it's distorted, but it, 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 it basically put it in a position on the front pages that it's not useful or helpful. So, uh, you know, there's a reason the PGA is concerned about this because it's a real threat. You know, the USFL is not a threat to the, you know, the NFL. Um, you know, the G League is not a threat to the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, the Korean League is not a threat to the Major League Baseball. This is a real threat to the PGA. And if they, if they can successfully handle their business, and if they can be happy enough with building a, a, a tour, and over time, you know, it, it could see real success. This turbulent and you know fraught beginning, I'm glad we're coming to an end of that part of the beginning. And you know, let's just get started and see how it goes. You can't build a brand in anything unless you're in the market and people can make their own opinions about you. And and that's really what a brand is: is people saying, "I like this, I don't like this." And right now, it's been all hypothetical. It's been all mm-hmm. talk. Greg Norman gave quite a doozy of a presser in London this week. Um, some of the stuff I agree with with what he said, and some other stuff maybe not. Um, <laughs> it could have been put differently, but. Right now, until this thing launches, it's just talk and players taking pot shots at Saudi Arabia and Greg Norman and any contenders. It's not a good spot for this this uh, you know for the Live Golf Invitational Series. But I was thinking about this earlier, Richard. You know, five years from now, a lot of this stuff will be forgotten if the if they are committed to keeping this going to growing it. People won't really remember this before the launch stuff. I don't think. Um, people will still have their opinions on Saudi Arabia and on Greg Norman and on a rival golf series. But I think it's a great point that you said that, you know, this is a serious contender to the PGA, like it or not. And that's why the PGA is so defensive about it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, five years from now, I mean, Saudi Arabia gets, gets pinged for a lot of things. You know, five years from now, maybe maybe people will look at it differently and look at, you know, their quote unquote sports washing differently. Uh, and, you know, and so you can argue, all right, so then it was a success. And, you know, critics will say, well, look, it was, this is just what we what we worried about. I, I think Saudi Arabia is going to go on its merry way anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this tour should go on its merry way and, you know, get started, uh, put on an interesting product, pay outrageous purses if that's the case, uh, cultivate and create and promote new faces and build the game of golf and see if you can capture an audience and, and then we'll talk because mm-hmm. right now it's just all been talk. It's all like, been talk. Like you yeah. say, like and you not say. a lot of it's been good. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm glad you mentioned that too. I mean, that that's the one way that we, we, you and I have talked about this off the air, but you know, sort of the way that this could work is they had these huge tournaments, big payouts. You got a couple familiar faces there, but then you have a bunch of unfamiliar faces taking part in this that you don't, you know, you've never heard of. 
guys that just got paid $8 million to win a golf tournament with Phil Mickelson and Lee Westwood and others in it. I mean, hypothetically, you know, eventually there'll be some discussion. Hey, can this guy play on the tour? Do you think he's good enough to play on the tour? What if, what if he's better than what we have on the tour right now? I mean, there'll be a debate and then you'll have that rival league start to attract more players. And from there you'll get TV money and endorsements and fan money you just got to get it out the door. You just got to get it going. And, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of mistakes on, along the way. I'm not sure that playing some of these tournaments at Trump resorts is a great idea, but it doesn't matter. You don't really know what's a good idea or not a good idea until you actually do it. And, you know, you just got to get it out into the market. Yeah. As I mentioned uh, some time back, uh, you know, we have had a previous conversation about golf on this, on this <laughs> podcast. You know, the operational security uh, of, of this process, you know, early on was not great. And again, that that had a lot to do with Phil Mickelson and, and a little bit to do with Greg Norman and his particular uh, approach to things. But, um, you know, all that's coming to an end in terms of the prelude and it starts next month in, in the UK and, and let's get it on and let's see how it works. And, and uh, you know, the proof will be in the pudding in, in you know, three, four five years. One thing they really did nail is player dissatisfaction with the PGA Tour. I mean, for months, there was nobody committing either way. And you're now seeing players like Sergio Garcia and others say, I'm really fed up with the PGA Tour. I'm not a fan. I don't like the way we're treated. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to join this new tour or not, but it's just all this talk was never good. So just get going with this thing. Let's watch some golf. Let's see how it goes. Get it out the door go from there. I certainly am planning to watch. Um, I have a couple of buddies who are going to going to actually attend this event in London at the Centurion Ooh, club, which looks nice. Cool. I cool. know I didn't get invited. I don't know what, what happened. Um, <laughs> I'm just kind of bummed because I got a, I got a really early tea time. You know, they're sending me off really early. It kind of pisses me off. Yeah. I, I, I give you the 6am. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, what am I? <laughs> well, look, Richard, if you go low, you know, you'll <laughs> be playing go. later on, <laughs> on, the, on the weekend, on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, great episode this week. Thank you so much. Um, again, find all this stuff on, on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcast. Give us that rating. Helps us out a lot. It helps us keep this going. Um, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian. Great work. You're the thank best. You. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs>